Greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. You can visit my website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube, and you can search for and subscribe to my channel there. You can also find me on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief, and you can uh, subscribe to the audio feed there. Um, <clears throat> if you want to go to back episodes, you can just go to the website, just click on podcast. You can see both the audio and the video there. Um, uh, just click on previous episodes. If you want to send me uh, a message, a question, or a word of encouragement, you can do that to jason at logicalbelief.org. Uh, just be aware by sending me a message, you are permitting me to read it on the air. Alrighty, well, uh, today uh, we are kind of putting in a filler episode. We have our upcoming series, uh, hopefully starting next week, if my if my guest um, it will, uh, if we can continue on that path, uh, we'll be starting, I believe, on the, if I remember right, let's look here, the 6th, will be the first episode we're going to do on the Anabaptists. And there'll probably be a series of them, maybe a, as many as four. So we'll, we'll kind of be starting with the history of the Anabaptists and then work our way to modern-day groups. Uh, we'll look at their confessions of faith and uh, some of the historical and present-day issues with the theology that comes out of those particular groups. So... So what I'm going to do today is uh, kind of put in a little bit of a, a filler episode. Uh, we're just going to talk about some various things, uh, some things that have uh, come up in the past, uh, some conversations I've had on both uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, that I thought might be helpful to you and in, uh, in dealing with, uh, with uh, both Roman Catholicism and uh, atheism. And, oh, and also, I almost forgot, but I am wearing my my cage-free Calvinist shirt uh, today that you can pick up from Adam4D. I don't know, I, I think actually maybe he's ended the sale on that. Uh, now, you know, hold on, guys out there. Those that say there's no way that you're a cage-free Calvinist, it, yes, yes, I've, I've reached the cage-free stage. Do not confuse... Um, a rigorous defense of the doctrines of grace uh, with someone um, who beats everyone over the head with, let's find it here, you know, Arthur Pink's, A.W. Pink's Sovereignty of God. You know, I'm not beating everybody over the head with that anymore. I've, I've gotten past that. Um, I don't beat everybody over the head with John 6 or Romans 9. Uh, we let God's grace... Sovereign grace work in the lives of people. So uh, I will still provide always a rigorous defense for God's gracious and sovereign right to save whom he will. And that we are saved by God's grace alone and not by anything that we have done. Um, but don't confuse that with, uh, with um, someone who goes out and just tries to convince every single person who claims to be a Christian about the sovereignty of God. Uh, I do it when it is necessary and uh, especially when the Reformed faith is um, 
under attack. Uh, and what the Bible teaches about God's grace and salvation is under attack. I will defend it, but that is not a caged <laughs> stage Calvinist. <laughs> so, alrighty, well that, there we go with that. So, uh, so one of the first things I wanted to uh, bring up is recently... Well, recently, I have to actually, when, when was this? This was back in October of 2015. Looks like the 23rd of October. I had a very interesting discussion with a Roman Catholic on um, on my an- anonymous, and after this episode, not so anonymous, uh, Twitter account. I have a Twitter account uh, called the Reformed Pope. I'll actually transition the screen here so you can see that. So there's my Twitter account, the Reformed Pope, and uh, and he is the uh, he says here I am the uh, unholy non-head of the church who doesn't sit in the place of Christ, fallible when speaking ex cathedra, protesting myself since 1517, solo deo gloria. So that's my Reformed Pope account. You know I'm not responsible for everything that he says. He can get a little snarky at times. But um, but he is an interesting character, and so uh, we've got, uh, looks like we have about 272 followers for the Reformed Pope account at this point. But uh, a while ago, the Reformed Pope um, made a particular comment that, uh, that a Roman Catholic didn't like very much. And uh, so ended up about a 60-tweet... <laughs> interaction with this uh, individual. His name was Christopher Zeigler. I mean, his name's on Twitter, so I'll go ahead and give his name. Uh, You can go see the conversation. It's still underneath my Reformed Pope account. Uh, But I had uh, posted a comment, a tweet, and I said, uh, just so you know, Mary cannot mediate for you. And then I said 1 Timothy 2.5. Now, at the time when I posted this, I didn't even really realize how devastating 1 Timothy 2.5 really is to the modern Roman Catholic's um, view of Mary. Um, currently, the Roman Catholic Church has the four Marian dogmas, uh, the divine motherhood, uh, mother of God, uh, which is basically the term Theotokos, uh, from the Council of Ephesus in 431, taken out of context. Um, those at the Council of Ephesus, when they referred to Mary as Theotokos, or as Mother of God, it was not It was not about Mary. It was to affirm the deity of Christ, uh, that she was the Mother of God because Jesus was God. Um, even though Mary only provided... Uh, for the incarnation, the human nature of Christ, the eternal Son of God, did not was not begotten of Mary. Um, he is eternally begotten of the Father, and that's what the Council of Ephesus was actually referring to. But modern day Roman Catholicism rips Theotokos um, that term, that Greek term. Uh, meaning, meaning mother of God, out of context, and emphasizes uh, <clears throat> Mary's position as the mother of God. They also have the second uh, Marian dogma, the perpetual virginity of Mary, 
the third Marian dogma, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, and then the Second Vatican 1950 uh, dogma by Pope Pius Twelfth that um, Mary was immaculately assumed, or not immaculately assumed, but assumed the assumption of Mary, that she was assumed into heaven uh, and that she never died. Um, and this was declared by Pope Pius II in 1950. And so these are dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, what a dogma means to the Roman Catholic Church is this is a belief that you have to have in order to be part of the body of Christ, to be a member of Christ's church. You must believe these particular dogmas. Uh, what's just absolutely insane about many of these dogmas is that, uh, let's take the assumption of Mary. Uh, established in 1950 as a dogma, a belief required for salvation. So the church for 1900 years almost didn't know anything about uh, the assumption. It was not a dogma. Uh, and so we had many Christians live their lives and trust in Christ for their salvation, not knowing that they also had to believe in the assumption of Mary to be saved. And they did so for 1,900 years until a Roman Catholic pope came along and said, oh, yeah, yeah, you actually have to believe that Mary was assumed into heaven and never died in order to be saved, to be part of the Catholic faith. Um, it's just absurd on its face. Well, the my tweet on um, my Reformed Pope Twitter account uh, was in reference to what is being known and what's being called now as uh, the Fifth Marian Dogma. This has not been officially sanctioned by the Roman Catholic Church as the first four have, um, but this is one that many... Roman Catholics today are uh, proposing and pressing the church to establish as the fifth dogma. Um, really, the Roman Catholic Church today has really become the Church of Mary. Um, it's uh, Mary has just become overwhelmingly uh, the focus of the modern-day Roman Catholic Church. And so the, this new fifth Marian dogma that's being pushed to be approved is that Mary is an intercessor, a mediatrix, another mediator. And so my tweet here uh, saying that just so you know that Mary cannot mediate for you, First uh, Timothy 2.5, is a devastating verse that literally destroys this idea. And in 1 Timothy 2.5, and many of you guys, I'm sure, are very familiar with this text, but it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. So this uh, Roman Catholic took a little bit of umbrage to my comment, and he responded, now, I'm going to try to follow this. This is rather difficult to do. Twitter 
is not the best place to have a meaningful interaction with someone. Uh, it's kind of difficult to do that often in in uh, in 140 characters. But uh, we did have an interesting conversation. And uh, so some of the threads, there was multiple threads that developed from this. So I think I've gathered most of the uh, interaction and I've put it in a document so I can kind of just follow it. Um, but yeah, there, there ended up being like 60 tweets going back and forth on this. But um, I just want to show you really how devastating this verse really, uh, how it deals with this, this uh, new Roman Catholic position of Mary being an intercessor or mediator, mediatrix. Uh, so this Christopher Zeigler responded to uh, this tweet, and, and he said, Mary mediates between us and Jesus Christ. She approaches the throne on our behalf. Behold your mother, John 19. And that's what he quoted. And this was um, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and he said, Behold your mother to uh, the apostle John, uh, his disciple whom he loved. And he... Um, he put Mary's care into John uh, because he was going away. And so he cared for, and it was actually even a requirement uh, within the uh, Jewish context of the time and even throughout um, the history of the Jewish people is that the elder would take care, the eldest, which Jesus was, uh, would take care of um, their elderly parents once, um, uh, you know, as they aged. And so so Jesus was taking care of his mother, uh, being responsible for that even from the cross itself. And so <clears throat> my response to this was because really what this individual, Christopher, is saying here is that we just quoted 1 Timothy 2.5, that there's only one mediator between God and man. Here we have God, and then we have an infinite space between sinful man and God, okay? And there's one mediator that exists between God and man, one, only one. That's what Scripture says. So whenever you're having these dialogues, don't allow the Roman Catholic, the atheist, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormon, they will often engage what we call uh, is a logical fallacy of like a red herring, uh, sometimes we call it rabbit trails. They will try to deviate the conversation. They will take it away from their difficulty. And that's what this guy keeps trying to do. I keep bringing him back to the text, though, repeatedly. And that's something that you have to do. Don't allow them to call, to take you off into other... You, if you can, briefly address maybe what they're saying, but bring them back to the core problem that they're not dealing with. And... So my response to this was, so there is more than one mediator between God and man? Question. Because that's just what he asserted. He just asserted that Mary mediates between us and Jesus Christ. And he goes, no. Whenever we say Mary, she says Jesus. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now notice he's not actually dealing, once again, with the question. He is actually asserting, even though he said no, He's asserting there is more than one mediator between God and man. So I responded. I'm bringing him back to the issue. So there are two mediators between God and man, man to Mary, Mary to Jesus, Jesus to the Father. 
Um, that's my question. Bring him back to it. And he responds, but our relationship to Jesus is mediated by Mary, prayer, scripture, sacraments, etc. Notice once again, he's not dealing with the argument. He's not dealing with the text of scripture. And we'll actually get to that further on as we go down. Um, he starts accusing me of taking the verse out of context. He tries to provide a context for it. And so I just uh, responded to this uh, statement. I said, where does the Bible teach this nonsense? That our relationship is mediated by Mary with prayer, scripture, and sacraments. And he goes, it's implied in numerous verses in the Old and New Testament. Scott Hahn is a good resource. And he linked me to a video by Dr. Scott Hahn. Now, I've listened to part of this, and I've listened to some other videos by Dr. Scott Hahn. And he is actually a former... Uh, Presbyterian Protestant uh, who was actually uh, he went to some Protestant uh, theological seminary I'm not sure exactly it wasn't like RTS or something but um, he went to you know a Protestant uh, seminary but he has returned to the mother church as he says and he has become a Roman Catholic and so there's actually several of his videos out there on YouTube, and I don't know if anybody has really addressed them, but I've, I've been listening to some of them, and I think I'm going to do several videos sometime in the future where I respond to uh, many of the the assertions that Scott Hahn makes, and and most of his arguments really are are simply that um, he he makes all these arguments about well. You know, we have examples of like the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. We have Adam and Eve. And, you know, Mary is the new Eve. She is the Ark of the New Covenant. And he makes all these assertions. The, the problem with all these claims is that no New Testament writer ever made these claims. And even if, for example, if Mary does represent the Ark of the Covenant in some way, let's just say, let's just give you that. Why would we pray to her? Why would we use her as another mediator? Why does that mean that she was assumed into heaven? Why does that mean that she was immaculately conceived? I don't I don't understand. Why does that mean that she was perpetually a virgin? Why does that mean that she was sinless? I I don't understand. I mean, I would say non sequitur very much. I mean, None of those, even if that would be true, that Mary is a representation of the Ark of the Covenant of the Old Testament. Where do you get rest of these uh, uh, dogmas from that? They don't logically follow. And the problem is, is that none of the New Testament writers make these sorts of arguments at all. Um, <clears throat> and so that's something I'm going to address uh, sometime in the future, I might do a couple blog posts in response to him and then do a couple podcast episodes because I think he does have some stuff that needs to be responded to there. So um, he says it's in it's implied in numerous verses in the Old and New Testament. Um, and then he references Scott Hahn. So I just replied, I said, so it's implied in the Bible, even though it's specifically denied in First Timothy 2.5. And that's actually the point here is that Okay, you're saying there's implications all over about how Mary is a mediator. And there's shadows and there's 
you know, there's things here that kind of imply and point to it. And no New Testament writer makes that particular argument. And the New Testament writer Paul specifically denies that Mary can be a mediator by 1 Timothy 2.5. So that's my point. Um, and so he responds here. It's not specifically denied. Read this tweet. Um, the meaning of the Timothy verse you cited is there is no way to go to God without Jesus. Okay, so now he's saying, now he's actually finally making an actual attempt to exegete the verse. So now he's saying, 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now he's saying that, that what the, that verse means is that there is no way to go to God without Jesus. Okay, N- no, that's actually more like John 14.6. It says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me, which would actually also be a text that refutes um, Mary. Mary is not another avenue by which to eventually get to the Father. Um, <clears throat> but uh, that is not what First Timothy uh, 2, verse 5 says. So I respond, I said, so the verse does not say there is one mediator between God and man? Uh, and then he responds, once again, he's making an attempt here to execute the verse, and he goes, which means without Jesus there is no other mediator. Interesting, because that's not what the text says. So I respond, this is not what the text says. It says there's one mediator between God and man. Once again, bringing him back to the issue that he is not dealing with. He keeps changing the meaning of the verse, uh, and he actually goes, he says something absolutely um, incredible here in a little bit. He then responds, and it says, also does not say you cannot pray to Mary, which is how you are interpreting it. Um, and I'm going to deal with this here. Uh, and I go, wow, that's your argument. The text doesn't say I can't pray to the Dalai Lama either. Do you support that? And then he goes, the Dalai Lama does not follow Jesus, did not follow Jesus to the foot of the cross. Okay, so everyone that followed Jesus to the foot of the cross can now be prayed to? I mean, if that's your argument, so you're saying the Apostle John, the other Marys that that were there, um, the the women, so we can pray to all of them because they followed Jesus to the foot of the cross. I, I just, I, this stuff is just not defensible uh, from a biblical point of view at all. And I respond, I said, praying to Mary is idolatry. It is attributing to a created thing attributes that belong to the creator alone. And this is something that I brought up in one of my previous episodes on Roman Catholicism, is that one of the big issues with uh, this Marian idolatry is that it takes the non-communicable attributes of God and it applies them to a creature. In other words, for Mary, how is it possible for Mary herself to be able to hear the prayers of what is it, 1.6 billion Roman Catholics around the world in different languages, she's able to hear and process their prayers. I mean, first of all, she would need at least some measure of omniscience in order to do that. She would need omnipresence in order to do that. Um, And she would need at least some omnipotence, at least (laughs) some aspect of these attributes that belong to God alone in order for her to accomplish this. And then he goes, no, Mary possesses nothing God hasn't given her. So 
I respond, which is what I just said here. So where does scripture say that God gave Mary his incommunicable attributes, which would be a, a self <laughs> a contradiction to say that God communicated to Mary his incommunicable attributes. Uh, Mary is not God, he responds, but Mary, but God made her full of grace that he is mighty and has done great things to me. So I respond, and this is a very common thing. You should be ready to respond to this when Roman Catholics say this, because when the angel Gabriel uh, came to Mary, he, he said, Mary, full of grace. And so uh, I responded to this, and I said, Acts 6.8 says that Stephen was full of grace. Is he also our mediator? Are there now three mediators between God and man? Um. <clears throat> And then he responds, he's a saint, but obviously cannot be compared to Mary. Okay, obviously from your assumptions, just what you assume about Mary. You haven't proven any of these things about Mary. So you're just saying he's just a saint, but obviously cannot be compared to what you assume about Mary. It would be a better way of actually saying this. He's simply asserting it. He's not making an actual argument for it. Uh, where in Scripture does it ever tell us to pray to anyone other than God? is my response. And then he goes, intercessory prayer is not a controversial uh, concept. And this is the typical argument that a lot of times Roman Catholics will go to. They will compare us praying to Mary and praying to the saints uh, to Christians going to another Christian uh, who is alive and asking them to pray for us, uh, you know, asking our brother or sister in Christ to pray for us. And so they compare that to us actually praying to Mary and to the saints, uh, to uh, to praying to the dead. Uh, and actually, I didn't even have this text ready, but I believe it is in uh, Jeremiah 31. Uh, I look it up. It says uh, it, it tells us specifically to not uh, inquire uh on behalf of the living, don't inquire the dead on behalf of the living. Uh, scripture explicitly tells us not to do this. And uh, I don't point that really out here. But So I'm, I'm going back I'm, in the next tweet here. I'm going back. I'm trying to press him back to the issue. And I, says, I say, um, it is if you turn someone into another mediator between God and man and give them attributes of God. And so that's how I respond to his intercessory prayer is not a controversial concept. Agreed, but that's not what's happening. So he is denying that that's what we're doing with, that's what they're doing with Mary. So I respond, so Mary is not another mediator between God and man. You don't pray to her and ask her to intercede for you. And then he goes, without Jesus, Mary has no intercessory power, but she magnifies the Lord. Um, so... So I respond to this. I said, so there's another mediator between God and man that gets her power from the only mediator between God and man? I'm confused. This is actually, and he doesn't even recognize it. Um, what I just posted here is a self-refuting statement. So let's go over it again. So she is another mediator, Mary. So she is another mediator between God and man that gets her power from the only mediator between God and man? I'm confused um, because if there there is 
the if the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, gives power to other people to be mediators between God and man, then he is no longer the only mediator between God and man. Um, he actually ends up affirming this statement. I, uh, uh, he says, God does not need any created thing at all, but he uses created things to show forth his glory. It's a mystery. And then he says, yes. So he responds in the affirmative to my statement that Mary is the is another mediator between God and man that gets her power from the only mediator between God and man. He just affirmed that self-refuting statement. Uh, so I re respond, I said, so you just affirmed a as true a self-refuting statement. Can self-refuting contradictory things be true in your worldview? And he goes, where is the contradiction? Uh, and obviously he didn't see it. I said, you affirmed as true there is another mediator between God and man that gets her power from the only mediator between God and man. And then he goes, I did not affirm your meeting. I clarified mine. Um, God doesn't, then he, re, then he posted his, uh, his tweet, God does not need any created thing at all. He uses created things to show forth his glory. It's a mystery. Um, but he, and he says, yes. So he does affirm the statement. So I said, so is Jesus still the only mediator between God and man? And then he goes, he doesn't respond to the, the question he goes without faith in Jesus there's no hope and no mediation giving glory to Mary does not detract from Jesus glory he does not deal with the question this is why you have to bring them back to the text that they're denying and and honestly this position of Mary being an intercessor and mediator is not tenable from scripture it's just not tenable you cannot the scripture is so clear on this that you just can't get around the argument there's just no way um <clears throat> So using Mary as another mediator detracts glory from the only mediator? Oh, I responded, using Mary as another mediator detracts glory from the only mediator. Um, <clears throat> and that's how I responded to that. And he goes, honoring Jesus' mother does not steal glory from Jesus. And then he goes, I do affirm, can you please not take verses out of context to use as a wedge against Catholics? So that's what he says. And he's telling me I'm taking the verse out of context. So this is where we get to him trying to explain the context. I said, so can you demonstrate how I'm taking it out of context instead of just saying so? What is the context that I'm taking it out of? And he responds, the verse means that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, not that there's no mediation between us and Jesus. So he's going back to asserting what I said before. He just, once again, his statement is self-refuting because he just affirmed there's only one mediator between God and man. But he's saying it, it does not mean there's no other mediation between us and Jesus. Well, okay, we are man, right? Isn't the us here man and Jesus is up here? And you're saying there's other mediation that goes between us and Jesus? That now means there is more than one mediator between God and man again. Um and he goes, obviously, there are things that mediate our relationship with Jesus. For example, baptism. Okay, now he's saying baptism uh, is a mediation. Uh, that's just uh, really an absurd argument. But baptism derives its power from Jesus. Without Jesus, nothing. It means nothing. Same without Mary. And so that's uh, where I think we kind of ended it. I was not, not able to find all the other tweets. But... Um, I think there was a few others that I responded, but at this point it was uh, it was time to just let this go. But as you can see, 
if you are dealing with Roman Catholics, 1 Timothy 2.5 is a devastating verse that they cannot handle. Uh, they can really not deal with in a meaningful way at all. And so <clears throat> I hope that was uh, helpful to you. Uh, so the other thing that I wanted to bring up was recently, well, if you, if you guys, well, let me jump back here. If you guys have listened to any of my podcasts on presuppositional apologetics, um, you and, and if you've listened to any lectures by Dr. Greg Bonson or if you've read any books by Van Til or Bonson, um, even John Frame on presuppositional apologetics, uh, what you will see pretty quickly is that these presuppositionalists, including myself, we all make the claim and the assertion that we are actually arguing with presuppositional apologetics, unlike evidential apologetics and classical apologetics, we are actually arguing, making a specific argument for the triune God of the Bible. We are not making an argument for a general deity. Uh, we are not making an argument for the deist world of view, worldview. Um, we are making an argument specifically for the triune God of the Bible. And uh, classical apologetics and evidential apologetics, the reason that we as presuppositionalists have issues with this is because primarily it tries to establish that there is a, there is a neutral ground between the believer and the unbeliever that we can go to. There are assumptions and there are presuppositions that we can just all agree to and there are truths that we can agree to, and then we can start from this 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 body of truth, and things like the laws of logic, the laws of science, mathematics, and we can we can take these, and then we can work our way together. This is the the process by which evidential apologetics works, and classical apologetics. We can take this body of knowledge, this body of truth, and we can work from that to um, to a god and we can we can use logical argumentation we can use the cosmological argument we can use a theological argument we can use the argument from design we can use um, uh, we can use all different types of argumentation we can talk about the complexity of the eye we can uh, we can use all these uh, we can talk about irreducible complexity uh, within DNA. We can take all these different arguments and we can prove to the unbeliever from a neutral position that God exists. And that's the evidential approach. Us as presuppositionalists, we deny that as being a biblical approach because A, it, it brings us to uh, a firm, uh, simply kind of a deist worldview that there is a God that obviously created it. This is... Um, you take the uh, um, the intelligent design model out there right now, like the Discovery Institute and stuff argues for. I mean, they'll have um, Muslims working for them, other um, heretical Christian worldviews uh, working for them uh, because they're just arguing for a general deity. Well, according to the Bible, that's an idol. That's a false god. And... As a Christian, I am not going to argue and make arguments for a false God. 
I'm going to make arguments only for the God of the Bible. And uh, classical and evidential apologetics would do that. They make arguments to a general deity and whatever that even means. And um, they also put the God of the Bible on trial, assuming that the unbeliever is in a neutral position and he simply hasn't seen enough evidence for God. Here's the thing. All those truths and knowledge claims that we we can supposedly go to a neutral uh, ground with the unbeliever on, um, those are owned by Jesus Christ. They are true because Jesus Christ created them. And they are true because he decreed them to be true. Um, Colossians chapter 2, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. For us to have wisdom and understanding, we have to start with the fear of God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there, there is no neutral ground. Romans 1 eliminates any sort of neutral ground. It says that all men know that God exists, and they're simply suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. So as a presuppositionalist, we say that we are making arguments specifically for the triune God of the Bible. Now, a lot of people that attack the presuppositional argument and approach to uh, apologetics will say that, well, we don't see how you're making an argument for the triune God of, of the Bible. I've, in fact, I've heard um, uh, people say when listening to the Bonson and Stein debate, which I did a review on early on in this podcast, that Bonson is not specifically making an argument for the triune God of the Bible. And I would wholly disagree with that. Um, I think he's specifically making an argument for the triune God of the Bible. In fact, he's saying that the only true justification for all of reality and for the laws of logic, for laws of morality, can only be grounded within the triune God of the Bible. And so the reason... Uh, so that that's the assertion we as presuppositionalists make. So I had a very interesting conversation uh, going back. Um, you know what? I don't even. Oh, this goes back to December. Oh, this was on Christmas Day. <laughs> so this was uh, a little bit over a month ago. I had a very interesting conversation on the Bible Thumping Wingnut Facebook group with. Um, and I don't know if this guy's an atheist. I tried to ask him what his worldview was. Uh, but his name is David uh, Guzman, and uh, he had posted a question on the Bible Thumping Wingnut, and I had engaged him briefly on this. But I thought this was a really good example about how presuppositional apologetics must assume the triune God of the Bible, and that it is an argument specifically for that. And so I'm going to just go through a little bit of this conversation here that I had with David Guzman so that you can um, you can see... Uh, that particular claim uh, being demonstrated here. And so David Guzman had posted on the Bible Thumping Wingnut, and he had just said, question. He goes, is it correct that the Christian claim is that atheists have no basis for morality? And that was a question that he asked. Now, I'm assuming here this guy is probably an atheist or an agnostic of some sort, um, but he wouldn't, when I specifically asked him later on in the conversation if he could at least tell me what his worldview was, um, because he he kept arguing from the Bible, and so it was kind of weird. Um, uh, he was almost arguing like a Jehovah's Witness uh, later on, um, and you'll see why he had to do that. But uh, so my first response, I was not the first one to engage with David on this, but 
um, uh, there was quite a few others that have been uh, engaging w with him on this question. Uh, but he kept asserting that his objective ha or his basis for morality is that we, sh we should use the no harm standard. We should do that which creates the least harm. That was his standard. And he did not, he was not recognizing, he was failing to recognize about how his standard is arbitrary. And that he's simply assuming it to be true and he's not providing any sort of justification for it whatsoever. He's simply assuming the truth value of it. So here's a question that I often ask atheists, agnostic, postmodernists, whatever uh, their flavor of the day is. Um, um is whenever they assert anything to be true, especially when it comes to morality, I will just ask him the the question this way because it it really demonstrates the arbitrariness of their claim. Um, I wrote here, David, by assuming an objective standard, you are borrowing from Christianity because Christianity does have an objective standard. We believe God has spoken in time. He has revealed to us um, his moral mandates, his prescriptive will for what we ought to do as his creatures. So we have a grounding and a foundation for this. So I said, David, by assuming an objective standard, you are borrowing from Christianity. Your worldview cannot account for objective morals. And then I wrote this. I said, maybe this question will help you understand why your no-harm standard is arbitrary and subjective. Another atheist, and this is the question I asked him, I said, another atheist says that morality is not determined by what does the least harm, but instead what brings the most pleasure. Who is right? You are him. So that was the question I asked him. You know, you're asserting that the standard is the least harm, and another atheist says, well, it's that which brings the most pleasure. Who's right? You are him. And... He responds and he says the necessary precondition for objective morality is living beings. If there weren't any living beings on, in the universe, morality couldn't exist. Stars and comets crashing into each other wouldn't be considered wrong or right, correct? He asks as a, as a question. The thing he doesn't realize here is that he's making a devastating argument for, against his own position. First of all, he believes that all we are is stardust. We're just evolved pond scum. We're just stardust. So we're no different than stars and comets crashing into each other. There's no morality there. Absolutely. And so he's saying that there that a necessary precondition for objective morality is living beings. <laughs> the answer to that is absolutely. You can't get objective morality from dust. You can't get objective morality from matter. Um <clears throat> But he doesn't realize that his position is the one that cannot account for this. And so I asked him the question this way. I said, David, I agree a living being is a necessary precondition for objective morality, which is actually the claim of the Bible. But I said, which living being should be the source of objective morality? There are seven billion now. So I know that he's referring to human beings because he denies the existence of God, most likely. Um, so... I'm asking him about the beings that he does acknowledge exist right now. So which one of the 7 billion subjective personalities, you know, living beings that are running around on this, the surface of the planet right now, which one is the source of objective morality? 
And he goes, Jason, let me correct you. A living being is wrong because if one being, who would he or she interact morally with? Aha. And this is where the presuppositional apologetic comes forth and provides the grounding when he asks this question. And he's he's really refuting his own position. I don't think he realized how both of his comments here refute his own position. But then I responded, and this is where I have said repeatedly that the, the triune nature of God is a necessary precondition for uh, many things, uh, but especially morality. Uh, but even things like transcendentals like love, uh, the philosophical one-to-many problem, um, there's many things that are solved and resolved by the triune God of Scripture, and that could not be resolved from a Unitarian deity. Um, so this was my response. A tripersonal being like the God of the Bible would interact within the persons of the Trinity, thus providing for a justification of interpersonal morals. So <clears throat> one way we can look at this is if if I existed on an island, if you existed on an island and you never interacted with any other human beings. Would you have um, a, an, a, a way to deal with morals at all? In other words, would lying be wrong? Well, lying would be wrong, but who could you lie to? Um, could you commit adultery? Could you look with lust? Could you uh, steal? Um, could you murder? Could you, I guess you could kill yourself, but... You you can't objective or, or interpersonal morals, which is what uh, morals apply to. It, it refers to our interaction with other persons and other beings um, can only exist if there are other beings for us to interact with. And so um, or other persons that we can interact with. And this is what is justified by the tri-personal nature of the God of the Bible. And so we go, he goes on here, it says, then you have to ignore the foundation of the religion you believe to say that God is three. And so this, that's what David Guzman responded with. And I responded, David, you are confusing the categories. So basically what he's doing is, is he's assuming uh, that the Bible teaches uh, Unitarianism. Um, and so I responded, I said, David, you're confusing the categories of being in person. There is one infinite being of God that is shared by three distinct persons. This has always been fundamental Orthodox Christianity. And then he responds, then the Old Testament is a lie. And so then I, I take him through many of the texts of the Old Testament to demonstrate uh, that um, there, there's so many types and shadows of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Um which is why I ended up asking this guy if he has like even a Jehovah's Witness background because he was arguing like a Jehovah's Witness. He wasn't really arguing like an atheist. So he may be one of those individuals that um, has seen the error of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society and instead of going to the truth of Christianity has instead abandoned the Jehovah's Witness and has become an agnostic or an atheist. So I, I don't really know. I, I kept asking him what his worldview was uh, so that I could more intelligently interact with him but he refused to actually tell me what it was um even though i was very forthcoming and i told him well you know i'm an evangelical you know reformed christian that's that's who i am uh, i'll tell you who what my worldview is um but he refused to 
to actually tell me what his specific worldview was. Um, so, but the thing that I just wanted you guys to know and recognize here is that the Trinity, the triune nature of God, is what we as presuppositionalists are actually arguing for. And in fact, that is what provides the grounding for um, many of the transcendentals that we argue with, with the transcendental argument for the existence of God. So um, I did do an episode uh, recently on the tag argument, and if you want to go back and listen to that to get a little bit more understanding of that, I would encourage you to do so. Um, so that's really all I have uh, prepared for today. I um, hope that was beneficial to you and helpful to you. And um, if the Lord's willing, we'll see you next week. And we will start with our episode on the Anabaptists. God bless. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? 